Dear friends, in Christ and his blessed mother, this topic can be teasing. John Edwards uh, set it up that way. And some of you may expect that I'm going to get into the battle, which gets ugly and bitter at times, about the consecration. Is it the case that the Pope and the bishops united with him have truly achieved uh, what was demanded? by the Blessed Virgin at Fatima, namely the collegial consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And I will briefly touch on this merely to plead my incompetence. I just want to put that dispute, which gets very ugly at times, into perspective. I then want to talk about this larger question of what is the message of Fatima and above all, the different distractions from that message. This to me is the most ominous part of the whole Fatima problem, the distractions from Fatima. The devil exists. If Fatima is true, as we all firmly believe it is true, it is the greatest advantage of the devil to distract us from Fatima, one way or the other. One way is as successful as the other, so long as we're talking about anything except the message of Fatima. I then want to end up with a short thought or meditation on what we mean by consecration and what we mean by the Immaculate Heart of Mary. It seems to me in some of this dispute about the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart, it seems to many of the disputants that one simply has to get on the radio or get somewhere on the medium, media and simply say, I hereby consecrate Russia. It's a matter of words. This whole question of what do words mean and what are we saying when we say we consecrate something to God? The more we reflect on what this word means, to consecrate, the less critical we'll be, I think, of officials. I mean, if you know me, I am sometimes critical. I mean, that's the story of my life. But when it comes to this uh, ugly, bitter dispute about the Pope and the bishop, I think we should not be that critical. Leave them to heaven, as Hamlet says. We have enough work to do on our own. The, I've read about ten different versions of the alleged uh, successful fulfillment of the consecration of Russia. In, in The Remnant, there was a short article by Malachi Martin. Uh, there are many longer articles by Father Nicholas Gruner, and of course, Father Fox condemns that, and Denant condemns Fox, and so on and so on. It's a rather unedifying dispute among people allegedly for God, for the Blessed Virgin, for the triumph of the Immaculate Heart. We're having all sorts of bitter disputes about, in fact, is it the case? that the Pope has fulfilled the request of the Blessed Virgin, and poor Sister Lucia is now involved in it. And, in effect, some people are calling her a liar, or the Pope a liar, or they're saying both are deceived or manipulated or whatever. So, I hope no one expected that I, coming from America, which is in the boondocks, that I have any special confidence to tell you the truth about what really happened in 1984 or anything else. I simply am at the mercy of what I read, what I hear. I have an open heart, an open mind. I am intensely interested in this entire question of, uh, of, of world communism, world atheism, the crisis in the church. 
the, the, the possible initiatives of the different popes, the secret of Fatima. I have all of these interests, but I myself plead incompetence. I don't see how any I or any layman can do much. First of all, there are all kinds of ingenious books, uh, some of them with enormous research behind them and quite plausible books about what possibly was or is the third secret of Fatima. And for this, we can certainly have an open mind and be grateful for the work done. But then even if we are somehow certain that the consecration has not taken place, which seems to be the position among, quote, conservative Catholics, uh, despite the Pope's protest of contrary, I wonder what special initiatives are possible for us laity. Are we going to peck at the Pope? Are we going to nag him, send all kinds of telegrams and letters? I suppose that is a possible initiative, but that may also be a distraction. It seems to me that we're too preoccupied with telling other people their job and not preoccupied enough with asking God what is our job, beginning in our own homes. So this may or may not be a disappointment, but I like to think of myself as a realist in such matters as these. Now, when I was reading about four different books on Fatima during the last week, I just quickly read through them again. You may note this about my biography. I got out of high school at the age of 18 in 1945, and I went to a, an engineering school conducted by the Jesuits in Detroit. And there was a young man, uh, a colleague of mine, also a freshman in college, who was running around talking about Fatima. He had put the accent on the wrong place. And this is a Catholic school right after World War II when, when piety seemed to be quite uh, active. And he went to the student council. He went to the chapel. He kept saying, we have to understand about Our Lady of Fatima. And we thought he was slightly strange. Most of us, we were rather pious people. Well, we listened to him, and there were, he had certain small literature about it, but he sensed the urgency of this problem. He then joined a Franciscan order, and he's Brother Camillus. Uh, he's a modest, unassuming man who still has this passion in life to make better known and to live out in his own life the message of Fatima, but uh, he failed. There was no interest in those days about the gloom and doom message of Fatima. And I, who were, I am normally alert to religious things, I forgot it. I mean, it just passed by me, something like the Shroud of Torino. I, in that university also, I saw a small pamphlet on the Shroud of Torino. And, and I, I read it, and I said, well, it couldn't be true, because if it were true, it would have been preached from every pulpit in the world. It was the most important, fascinating document I had ever read that the very image of Christ is somehow preserved on a cloth. So, I eventually though, about ten years later, I finally read many of the books about Fatima, read many of the messages. My late wife was a very pious woman from France who had absolute confidence in the truth and authenticity of Fatima, and then later on of Garabandal, and she was bitterly disappointed as when she had a terminal illness that 
she would not live to see the fulfillment of so many things that she had fervently believed in. So, as I say, I am aware of most of the things that have been said about Fatima, I mean the, back, the bare outline. I in no way pro, uh, claim any sort of uh, special detailed knowledge, but what are the things in the message of Fatima which makes so many people in the church shrink from the message, so many clergymen become silent about the message? Well, to be blunt about it, it's negative. It's a kind of prophecy of doom. It has, a, it has a conditional clause there that these things may be averted if, but the if is a big if. I know some Monsignor in New York wrote a column in the diocesan paper saying, Lord, yes, Fatima, no, because we want hopeful, positive things and Fatima depresses us. So that, that's the way he dismisses this point. Now, Fatima speaks, first of all, of the vision of hell, the most unpopular topic in the last 25 years. It's a four-letter word that one does not mention, right? So already that guarantees an enormous silence on the part of people. It speaks of sins of the flesh, and they but accelerate this whole abortion carnage begins with sins of the flesh. And one wonders, uh, when one, one wonders uh, what new perversion will happen. It began with, uh, with immodest dress, which Fatima also mentioned. One wonders if that has ever been heeded. I've never heard a single sermon. I've never read a single thing written in the last 25 years about immodest clothing. And yet it's all around us. So the, these are the things. It talks about persecution, and we know this. If we simply, if we have listened to the serious journalists and not the, the, the dupes of the left-wing press, we have known about the awesome persecution of the church in all Eastern countries, uh, beginning with Lithuania. And the great uh, Vern Friedrich Stratton, almost alone among his clerical colleagues, had the courage and the charity to speak about the slaves behind the Iron Curtain. Now it's quite uh, trendy to send the television crews over and interview slaves and, and talk about them. Now suddenly the media have discovered the, the, the horrible conditions of the persecuted peoples. But they still haven't discovered the, the persecution in South America. The Jesuits and the Marinellas are the only communists left or communist sympathizers left in the world. And they insist that no matter what the truth be in other parts of the world, at least in South America, it is the Marxists who have the humane conditions for the human race. Now, that's, so the heart of the message is a bitter indictment of the way we behave, not simply popes and bishops, but the way you and I behave, the way so-called Catholic families behave. We have no Catholic civilization. We yield inch by inch to the secular giant. And, and this horrible paganism has descended upon us, and we ape it. We simply have no antidote. We seem to have joined the world instead of raising a standard of Christ as the light of the world so that the world can be transformed by us. The message also said that the things to be done... Certain things are to be done by the Pope and the bishops acting in concert with him. And the Pope has a will of his own. 
a mind of his own. The Pope comes to that uh, awesome office with his own personality, with his own education, his own prejudices, his own estimates, judgments, fears. And for whatever reason, the Popes from 1960 on have felt it not opportune to reveal the third secret. And some of them have more or less tried, timidly or otherwise, to consecrate the world, which allegedly includes Russia, to the Immaculate Heart, and this present Pope insists now that he has done all he can. But that was the task of the hierarchy, the bishops and the Pope. And we can deplore it, we can pray for them, we can nag them with telegrams and so on, but I don't think we can do anything directly about it. There was, however, in the message of Fatima, very clear uh, um, obligations for us faithful. You and I will not personally consecrate anything, I mean the world, or Russia, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, but we were told in Lucia's uh, uh, added uh, uh, words and, and explanation of the original message about the penance demanded of all the faithful, and one of the great penances is this day-by-day day taking up of our cross. Whatever state of life we're in, we're single and lonely. We're married and unhappy. We're clerical and we have an SOB for a superior. Son of a bitch, that means. To be crude about it. Every one of us has a problem. Our health, our finances, our children. And it takes courage. It takes a kind of giant spirit. Instead of whining all the time, it takes courage and humility and reverence and, and fortitude to bear that daily cross instead of trying to escape it or always pass the burden on someone else. It's always easy to look at someone else and shake your finger at him and, and write him some uh, diatribe. It's much more difficult to look in the mirror and inquire, what should I be doing here and now with my children, my parents, my, my in-laws, and so on. So that was addressed to us, not to the Pope and not to the hierarchy. And there was the message also of the need for reparation. The, the, this whole notion of the economy of salvation, which has rarely been preached, I have what is considered one of the better educations available to a Catholic man in America. Uh, it was almost totally by Jesuits. From the age of 13 on, I was educated by Jesuits who were faithful to Rome in those days. You heard a Jesuit, you heard the Pope, you heard history, you heard tradition, you heard the magisterium. But, and they did have certain uh, discussions and sermons on this notion of this mysterious thing about sin and, and the rending of the fabric of the harmony between the creation and God and the need to repair that fabric, this reparation of the original harmony between the creation and God. But it was not that clear. It was not that emphasized. And in the last 20 years, it's never even mentioned, this whole question of reparation. The big theme today is ecology. And we have to repair the forests and the ozone layer. But about this notion of sin, forget it. That's a three-letter word which one never mentions in polite company. The question, therefore, of uh, th this whole meaning of reparation 
And the Blessed Virgin in later uh, apparitions to Lucia uh, had this image of herself of a heart surrounded by thorns and asking that she, and protesting or complaining that she is alone in her desolation and asking faithful people to pluck out a thorn to abide with the Blessed Virgin and somehow to offer their own suffering with her sorrowful heart so that she can be consoled. So this whole notion of the heart of the Blessed Virgin and the heart of Jesus Christ, the sacred heart, this whole notion of their being wounded and they're inviting us, nay, begging us to repair some, to some extent, the anxiety and the rupture in those loving hearts this is basic to Fatima. You don't hear about it in the bitter dispute in which people sling ink at each other and, and diatribes and insults and accusation. I mean, this is gone. We have much more fun sending each other to hell with our diatribes. I want to read from one of the books I was looking through here. Uh, this is the book Fatima and Our Salvation by a Jesuit, uh, Father Martins, S.J. Uh, let me just see, his first name is Antonio Martins, S.J. And it, uh, the, the message of the angel, the angel appeared several times before the Blessed Virgin. And I just quote this prayer that the angel himself uttered in the most reverential way, kneeling, before the unseen God, kneeling on the ground, he bowed down until his forehead touched the ground and made us repeat these words three times. My God, I believe, I adore, I hope, and I love you. I ask pardon of you for those who do not believe, do not adore, do not hope, and do not love you. Dear friend, do you see the irony in these words? This is the beginning of the message of Fatima. The angel, an angelic creature with an incredibly gifted spirit, a pure spirit, a mind, a heart, a will, who can know and love and praise God. In, and instead of any blustery uh, uh, strutting up, touching the ground, therefore appearing in a visible form, and uttering external words of belief, adoration, hope, and love. And almost not one of these things is evident among Catholic people today. Belief? Do we believe? Do we ever act as if we believe there's eternity? And adoration? Trembling adoration before this mysterious, tremendous mystery? It's not apparent in our churches. The Blessed Sacrament is treated with total disregard. Hope, we are a generation of despair. We hope in the government. We hope in medical science. Very few of us allude to the supernatural source of hope. And reparation and pardon and so on. So in the very prayer of the angel stands the indictment, not simply of Rome, and the derelict popes, the delinquent popes who have failed to consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart, that's the indictment against us all. This lukewarmness in faith and hope and adoration and love. This whole preoccupation with the secular enterprises. So that is but a, an indication of 
that this is one of the messages of Fatima which I think ought to be stressed. I'd like to meditate apropos of this, apropos of this notion of the Blessed Virgin submitting to us the thorns around her heart, I'd like to think of two basic sources of suffering. Whenever one speaks of thorns, one always speaks of suffering. The literal thorn pricks you. As you go to collect the beautiful rose, the fragrant rose, which is so wondrous, you are liable to have a bit of pain by a thorn because it pricks you but far greater are the thorns of the spirit. We are surrounded. Sometimes we have terrible pains of the body, which are real thorns, and they penetrate deeply into us. But if these be lacking, we have thorns of the spirit, and we're filled with thorns and scorpions, and the perfect image of someone suffering. And when these thorns are wound around what looks like a physical heart, they are never meant to mean merely pains in the chest. That happens with cardiac patients. They always have to do with pangs of the spirit. So when I think of the suffering of the human race, the Pope has a prayer in his homily in 1982, the year to the day after he was shot at St. Peter's Square. He went to Fatima and gave a long homily and the very gripping words in which he is very open to and sympathetic to the enormous suffering of the world. And he has ominous allusions to the message of Fatima and the source of suffering. We can note that there are at least two basic sources of suffering in this world. And this is an ultimate datum. This is a datum linked to that mysterious economy of salvation. The the most fearsome suffering, suffering of all kinds, is that deserved suffering because of sin. If there were no sin, no original sin, no actual sin, there could be no suffering. That would be some sort of an injustice from the divine creator. But sin enters the world, this clenched fist rebellion against the holy order of God, and with sin comes death, and death is preceded and accompanied with suffering. So one endless source of suffering in this world and in the next is directly related to sin. And if we do not grapple with the datum of sin, we really have nothing to say about thorns and hearts and suffering and everything else. This is the key point. When we suffer, we should instantly think of sin and not in the first place the Pope's sin or the bishop's sin, but our own. Start with our own and work to the mother-in-law and work to your husband and work to your children and everything else. And you're already into philosophy. This whole link, this mysterious link, that sin, deliberate, uh, 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 willful disobedience against the law of God, sin deserves punishment. Even the non-Catholic, non-Christian, I don't even know if he was a, believed in God, but the great German philosopher Kant, Immanuel Kant, the first part of his great work, the critique of pure reason, or his whole critique of pure reason, try to show that we humans on earth have no way of knowing that God exists, or the will is free, or the soul is immortal. Then he wrote another book saying, but we do know that we have good and evil people on earth, good and evil deeds. And he said, I know for certain 
one thing I know for certain is that when we do evil, we deserve punishment. And when we do good, we deserve some sort of reward. And on the basis of the desert of moral good and evil, Kant's second book tries to prove that God exists and there's an a life after death and that the soul is free, the will is free. Now, I'm not justifying his proof. I'm saying even that man, a kind of quietistic, non-theistic Protestant, you can in no way accuse him of being a, a fervent Lutheran, much less a Catholic, he understood the ultimate relationship between suffering and sin, moral evil. The other kind of suffering, though, is beautiful. The first kind of suffering is when finite creatures who are persons, animals cannot sin, and why they suffer is a deep mystery. They sin, they in no way sin, but they somehow bear the penalty of finite persons who sin. So do the trees with their blights, but the trees do not sense, they have no sensation. The animals seem to have sensation. But the original suffering, I repeat, is because finite persons commit sin and deserve suffering. There's another way to suffer which is beautiful. It is when a person who does not sin, some persons cannot sin, the divine person, some persons do not sin, the holy virgin never sinned, and therefore to the extent she suffers, to the extent a thorn wraps around her heart, you cannot say, well, Mary, that's the eternal law that sin brings on suffering. What sin? She has no sin. She's immaculate. But we say, love brings on suffering. If you could enclose your heart and isolate it from anyone, your sufferings are strictly limited to yourself. Your own teeth, when they ache, your own problems of health, your own loneliness, and so on. In the moment you love a person... If that person suffers for whatever reason because you love the beloved, the beloved suffering comes to you. So this immaculate heart of Mary, when we look at the wounded heart of Mary, we are looking at a sinless person, able to love in a totally pure way. But because she loves, when her beloved children are suffering, perhaps on this earth, certainly God forbid, in hell, their suffering somehow touches her. And the, and the thorns are drawn tighter and the blood flows. So this, this is a wonderful meditation, really, on the message of Fatima, that it's not simply a formality of saying a few magic words and we solve the problem. We try, let us try to understand what sort, of, what sort of being is the Blessed Mother? What sort of incredible mystery is this created humanity of the Blessed Mother who loves us, whether we are lovable or not, loves us as a mother, loves a, a wayward child, and because she loves, even though she is sinless, the thorns press in upon her when the beloved children suffer, and they suffer justly, and it may well be they suffer eternally, justly. The <clears throat> great, so much for my first, for my, that second point, therefore, about the message of Fatima, 
The great distractions are these, or I just quickly uh, sum them up. I, I was a friend of the great Hamer's Fraser, one of the most marvelous men I've been privileged to know in my entire life. Hamish died about three years ago in Scotland. He used to edit this journal, Approaches. And Hamish had been a communist. He fought on the communist side in the Spanish Civil War. He was converted to the Roman Catholic Church by papal encyclicals on social justice. And Hamish took especially seriously the urgency of Fatima. Whatever he wrote, I got his journal maybe 15 or 20 years ago, and I got it forever until he died, and his son a similar journal. And almost every issue of Approaches would have Hamish writing a burning article about how urgent it is to pay attention if, in fact, Fatima is authentic. And we have the testimony of the highest authorities in the church that it's authentic. We have human testimony of miracles really predicted and really happening instead of all these vague things that one hears rumors about. So if ever a miracle outside of Scripture has been authenticated, it's Fatima. If ever a message has been authenticated, it's Fatima. And Hamish Fraser's great concern was that the Catholic people will be distracted from Fatima by counterfeit coin. And just figure it out, dear friends. You have three young children with nothing to gain and everything to lose in a beautiful, humble way, talking about the message of Fatima. Two of them died. They have just been made venerable. You have church authorities from the bishop right up to several popes authenticating it. You have the message predicting a huge miracle of the sun, which happened and was witnessed by 100,000 people, many of whom are anti-clericals and atheists who have to admit what they saw, the miracle of the sun. And what would be if this message could have been promulgated? It seems to me that 2% of the Catholic people I know know the message so much they're tired of it. Every time they come to a meeting, they hear the same old thing and they're tired of it. 98% had never heard it once. Never heard it once. I mean, Fatima sounds like, a, that, I don't know what it sounds like, a rock music group. Or some Muslim name, which in fact it also is. But they don't know anything about it. So if you were the devil, I mean, just think with a, with a much more uh, uh, modest intellect, there are two ways to oppose Fatima. One would be to try to kill the children. One would be to try to silence the preachers. But that would not have worked. People were going out. When I was in 1949, when I told you that one man told us about Fatima, he was only one man, but had the in turn, he would have been succeeded by more eloquent, more knowledgeable people, but people more apt to, to convince others. And people would have preached from the pulpits. The way they preached St. Catherine Labore, the miraculous medal, Fatima would have been preached. And Fatima right now, I mean, 30 years ago, may well have come in time. But one way to get rid of this terrible message of Fatima from the devil's point of view is to raise up all other kinds of messages. Everybody has visions. As I tell people, it's easier to find a mystic than a typist. Everywhere I go, people have visions. 
and and they're running here, they're running there, they're running here. Let's have a tour here, have a, have a tour here. Well, that is a master stroke. Now, I'm in no way prejudging any of these, but I'm awfully cautious. I mean, I, I met three of the four girls of Garabandal, and I had no reason to think they're quacks. But, I, but before, I was absolutely convinced that they were authentic. Right now, I'm backing off. I'm waiting for the church. Precisely because I'm worried about counterfeits. And there are all other people. Everywhere I go, in small locales, I meet seers. And they are distracting from the urgency of Fatima. We used to have a group, something like Profide here. Uh, I was vice president of Catholics United for the Faith. I also started the Roman Forum, which began Keep the Faith, which is a big audio and, uh, apostolate. And from Keep the Faith, John Edwards started Christus Vincent Productions. And we used to have people, vigorous people, who would try to spread authentic Catholic doctrine until they met visions. And after a while, forget it. They were over. They were congregating here and there and, and telling us, they're giving us messages day and night. And I said, what a coup of the evil deceiver. So I don't want to get any more specific. I could break up this meeting if I got too specific. I beg you to be cautious. I mean, if you have an authentic thing, authenticated from the highest authority in the church, you should think twice before you give your hasty allegiance to something not yet authenticated. It, it's time it may come. And we have the teaching authority of the church to authenticate it. Meanwhile, I beg you to exercise discretion and caution. There are too many counterfeits around. So that's the first great distraction, and that will always be with us. No matter when, whenever you have real coins, the easiest way to depreciate the real coin is to scatter a hundred false coins. And then after a while, people will confuse. They will eventually be disabused of the counterfeit. And then they're going to take the real coin and throw it away and say it's counterfeit. And the devil wins. There's another way he wins. I've alluded to this already. The bitter fights within the Blessed Virgin's movement. The Blessed Virgin is the queen of peace the queen of martyrs, the queen of patriarchs. She is, the, she is the focal point of everything wondrous and beautiful and harmonious in the Catholic Church. But in the name of the Blessed Virgin, we have the most horrible, ugly fights, lawsuits, in almost every movement I know of in America. The, the Blue Army is headquartered about an hour and a half drive from my house, it's a wonderful group. I know uh, Father Miller now there. But in all kinds of subsections, in all kinds of meetings, you find something which is not of God. And that is a victory for the devil. He doesn't get them with counterfeit, but he will get them with this bitterness. They act as if they are zealous for truth, but they're not. They're zealous for the egotistical victory that their version uh, overcomes some other person's version. Now, a third distraction is what's happening within Fatima movements, namely reading the news from Eastern Europe as if this authenticates uh, the consecration of the Russia to the Immaculate Heart. In other words, they spend all their time on Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Poland, Lithuania, and everything else. And they say, you see, you see, it's happened, the world is free, and all that stuff. 
Uh, and and you, they act like political reporters. My advice, again, is be cautious. There certainly is some good news. They don't get shot in Albania now for baptizing a baby. Uh, 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 they might even get building permits in Poland to put up a church, and perhaps in Lithuania. But do you really think this is the triumph of the Immaculate Heart? I mean, I rarely look at television. I rarely look at it, except for sports. Uh, I'm a nut on, on football. But, but apart from that, I mean, to say the first few days of, quote, liberation, they were tripping over themselves from East Germany to get to West Germany to buy material things. I mean, uh, pressure cookers, VCRs and all that. That's the triumph of the Immaculate Heart. In Romania, the first law passed was liberalizing abortion. Porn and prostitution were glamorized when the East Germans came to West Germany. Not that West Germany has any morality left. It is a desolate country. So that's another distraction, to treat us to a tour of Europe and show how this is happening, this is happening. Your best bet here is to follow the wonderful Bacon priest, Bernfried von Straten, he is one of the few men of real integrity. The most people are wimps. They're cowards. They are seduced by the enemy. They will sell, as Malcolm Mugridge noted. They'll go to Russia in the worst times of persecution and write a glowing report about the future and how wonderful it is. See no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil. Not so Father Berenfrey, one of the great personalities. It's been my privilege to meet. He has this little publication, The Mirror, about the church in need. You read his recent articles about East Germany and, and the Soviet bloc, and he has this wondrous Catholic intelligence and caution. He's grateful that there is political freedom. You don't get a bullet in your back if you try to speak about Jesus Christ. You're allowed to get Bibles. But, you know, we in the West have all kinds of Bibles. We, we buy them by the ton. It had done us no good. So, Berenfried, with his in tremendous intelligence and caution, he simply says, let us wait, let us pray, let us not be naive. So, so much then for those uh, distractions, which I think Fatima enthusiasts ought to be aware of, lest we throw away whatever prize there is in these political actions. I want now to come to my last few points on this meaning of the word to consecrate, to, to, to put into the service of the sacred. That's really what it means. I consecrate something. I put into the service of the sacred. That's what we're talking about. And if you want to think big, which a lot of people love to do, uh, you could say, oh, I, I'm going to consecrate the world. Five billion people. Or I'm going to consecrate uh, Russia. Uh, to, to maybe uh, Russia as a, as a republic, maybe 100 million people, or, or France, 50 million people, or my diocese, 300,000 people, or my parish, 2,000 people. That's thinking big. And that's the hierarchy's problem. Part of the disorder in the church today is the total lack of serenity with one state in life. We have priests in America running for Congress and, and doing this and doing that. I mean, they're running the world. They're telling us all about economics and everything else. And then we have laity being busybodies in the chantries and in, and in the sanctuary where they have no business. 
And this is supposedly the age of the laity. As if, as if, as if the meaning of lay initiative in the temporal order is for me to put a surplus on and act like a busybody so father can play golf. That, that the, Hamish Fraser saw that and understood it perfectly. So I'm saying that, the, and this disorder here. So when it comes to the world and Russia and the diocese, that, please, gen, ladies and gentlemen, is the hierarchy's problem. And the Pope. They will all see God. Every one of them will be summoned to eternity. And that's their problem. We, though, have families. I don't care if we're just but sons and daughters of a family. Many of us are fathers and mothers of family, sisters and brothers and so on. And I just want to ask myself this. Let's think small. Have we consecrated our families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary? Never mind Russia. Never mind the world, our families, and still more fearful, have I consecrated myself. Now, I remember when my family was small, we had four young children, we invited a wonderful priest, and he had an image of the Sacred Heart, and we went through the enrollment of the family in the Sacred Heart. We said it, we meant it. I don't know if we understood it. I don't know if we lived by it. I don't know if it's the Spirit of Christ which ruled in my house when my family was intact. I'm not sure. Because it, be, it frightens me when I realize the implication of saying to God, I offer you everything I do and think and say. I'm ashamed of that when I reflect on what I have done and thought and said yesterday or the day before. So this whole problem of consecration, it's not a mere matter of lip service. Here's a magic formula, Holy Father. Get on Vatican Radio and say it, and we're solved. This is the kind of self-delusion which so many even authentic apparitions have bred in the Catholic people. A kind of magic. And the progressives gleefully jump on us for that. And, and they get everything mixed up, of course. So I'm saying when I think of what it means that I consecrate myself, never mind my wife, my children, my in-laws, but I consecrate myself. One of the prayers says to the Blessed Virgin, I, I promise to make your thoughts my thoughts. Do I mean that? The Holy Virgin has pure thoughts. I have impure thoughts. I am envious and jealous and, 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 and proud and haughty and, and everything else and impure. So if I took seriously my consecration to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, it would be the thoughts of Mary which dominate my consciousness. Her love, her pure love, her love scattered for everyone, not just for nice people, would inform my heart and her actions. Would, would be the model of my action. So I beg you, when you start speaking of the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart, that's thinking big. I beg you to think small. Consecrate your family, yourself, your deeds for tomorrow, just for tomorrow. Make that morning offering through the sorrowful and Immaculate Heart of Mary. Offer Jesus all our prayers, works, joy, sufferings of this day, then you're going to understand what we're up against when it comes to collegial consecration. It's not that easy. There's no quick trip to success in this 
battle against the devil for salvation and for the glory of God. When it comes to the consecration of anything to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, my final point is this. When one talks about what do you mean when you say the Blessed Virgin is Immaculate, it means without stain. If you are somehow without stain, you are Immaculate. Please stop the machine and turn the cassette over at this point without rewinding. The program continues on the second side. Everyone quotes the poet, our tainted nature's solitary boast that all of us have taint, to say it mildly, and she is shiny. There is no, there is no dullness or no, no poison of sin marring the original created beauty. And then to that natural beauty of Mary came the fullness of divine favor so that she glows with every possible supernatural gift possible to a creature. But that's the first meaning of immaculate and it's absolutely rooted in the doctrine of the immaculate conception, which of course is denied in our catechetic. This is what I say. Instead of jumping on the Pope to get Russia consecrated to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, you would do well to go to your parish and find out what they're saying about the Immaculate Conception. And maybe if you took one of those poor, defrauded children who have been given stones instead of bread and told that youngster the truth about our Catholic faith, about the Blessed Virgin, you would advance ever so slightly the reign of the Immaculate and Sacred Heart. This is part, this is real, this is possible. The other thing is mostly rhetoric. I want to propose, though, one more point, or one more meaning to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Uh, we have a, 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 a line, who is this that comes, bright as the sun, fair as the moon, awesome and terrible as an army set in array. This is scriptural. And we speak of the Blessed Virgin as bright as the sun and fair as the moon. And I think it's a beautiful image to try to appreciate a new meaning, which is rooted in the first, but still different, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. When we look at the sun and moon literally, the sun has its original source of brightness and light. It's a burning star. The moon is but a mirror. And if we think of Jesus Christ and his divinity, Jesus Christ is the original source of holiness, of infinite holiness, infinite beauty, infinite truth. And the Blessed Virgin is finite. She's like a little mirror. But the mirror is so beautifully polished that in this finite circumference, all the brightness of the sun is somehow focused so that we who see the mirror, the moon of Mary, immaculate, shining, brilliant, we are, we, we are caused to raise our mind upward to that original fire of Jesus Christ. That's one of the tragedies of the Protestants and one of the tragedies of the modern progressive who act as if the Blessed Virgin is the rival to Christ. That the more we honor Mary, the more we forget Jesus Christ. It's total nonsense. The more we allow our minds to, and hearts to focus on the moon, which is so, so manageable, 
It's not so awesome, but it's there and it's bright. The more we're forced to look toward that uncreated light, which is the sun. S-U-N, as it were, and S-O-N in the Holy Trinity. So, from these two standpoints, when we look at this new, there's a doctrine in the Catholic Church which has always been there, but became explicit only a few hundred years ago. Uh, uh, as Cardinal Newman says, there is never any novelty in true doctrine. Real orthodox doctrine grows from the implicit to the explicit, but it was always somehow there, and it gets but more differentiated, more detailed. And so too here, from the earliest revelation of Jesus Christ in his person, his words, in the gospel, in tradition, in liturgy, in sacraments, we have always known about the loving heart of the Son. There are not scriptural passages, but uh, 300 years ago, to a humble nun of the visitation in Paris le Monial, there was this marvelous apparition of the sacred heart, the God-man displaying a member which looks like the physical heart and saying, pointing to the breast and saying, how lonely, complaining about the coldness of the world and how lonely is the sacred heart. So this was under a Jesuit confessor, by the way. The Jesuits in those days were fervent believers. And the Jesuits had the unique mission of spreading devotion to the Sacred Heart. At my Fordham University, I, I am on the smaller campus. We have a huge, beautiful campus in the Bronx. I am on the Lincoln Center campus, only a few acres, and right next to the Metropolitan Opera and the disaster. Everything's a disaster, but I think our campus is especially so. But at the big campus, there's a big building which used to house the machinery and office of the publication of the Sacred Heart Messenger, run by the Jesuits and spread throughout the world. The cult of the Sacred Heart, right now it houses disabled priests. It, 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 it's an infirmary. It's almost a fitting symbol for the campus and everything else. But the Jesuits were fervent people, and this doctrine of the two hearts, we have, and this is absolutely authentic spirituality rooted in the gospel and made more explicit by certain private revelations, but then even these private ones announced to the universal church as totally worthy of approval. And this doctrine of the two hearts is you have the sacred heart of Jesus Christ, you have the immaculate heart of Mary, and this is going to be the spirituality of the next centuries if, in fact, we survive. And there are two dimensions to the heart. Insofar as you refer to your heart, and I mean your, your spirit, not your pump. Insofar as you refer to the heart, one dimension is the heart is what you point to when you point to the source of love. It, you don't love with your mind, you don't love with your will, that's a distortion of language. There's something more tender, more ardent. You could call it emotion, if you will, but the angels have it. So it's a spiritual emotion, and that you have this love pouring out from you. Now, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, Jesus Christ as true God, has this heart pouring out love upon the creation. That's no problem. The second aspect of the heart is that part of a person able to be wounded. You do not wound God. Sin offends God in a mysterious way. 
Do you think, but sin never wounds God. Do you think God weeps? Do you think God loses a night's sleep because of the follies of men? Why do the nations rage and the people utter folly? Nonsense. But the created heart of Jesus Christ, the humanity of Jesus Christ, can feel all sorts of wounds, desolation, betrayal, loneliness, agony. So this wonderful doctrine of the two hearts tells us as lovers, Jesus Christ is a divine lover and has a human and divine nature and pours out an infinite love on the whole creation. Mary is a total creature, has no divinity in her, but being perfectly open to divinity, Mary's heart as a loving heart pours out her own finite measure of love to her children and her church. But as created, Mary's heart created, Jesus Christ has a created heart, he has a human will, Human mind, human, there are two wills in Christ, two hearts in Christ, two, two natures in Christ, only one person. It is the most awesome mystery of the incarnation that the created nature of Jesus Christ suffers, is wounded, is lonely, is offended. So I would end up saying, let the message of Fatima be concentrated on the hearts of Jesus and Mary. Let the message of Fatima be concentrated on the unique relationship of sin. Our sin. Never mind the Pope. He goes to confession to our sins with respect to the immaculate heart of Mary and the sacred heart of Jesus Christ. And let us, uh, let us pray that we can somehow summon the nerve, if you will, or the grace, of the courage to say and mean, my God, I believe, I adore, I hope, and I love you. I ask pardon of you for those who do not believe, do not adore, do not hope, and do not love you. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. says most of it um, I heard Dr. Murray just before he began his talk tell John Edwards that he would probably take about 65 minutes I don't think anybody would have complained had he done so and more he has in fact I think taken about 50 minutes um, are there any questions comments you'd like to address to Dr. Murray I know you said not to, believe, uh, not to believe in other apparitions, but if that was the case in 1917, the only people to see the miracle of the sun would have been three children and a handful of villagers, wouldn't it? Uh, well, I can say this. If you hear of an apparition, you're always free to go there with an open mind, but then I think you should be docile to church authority, and it was not too long before the local ordinary did approve it, but I agree, there is this chance. I mean, you should never, it, it shows that thing. To close your mind, say, can't be right, just walk along and scuff. Walk away and scuff. That's bad faith. But the opposite is credulity. So I would, I, I don't know how I would have received. I even went to an alleged apparition in America with total waiting to believe it. I'm not going to mention it, which one it is. 
But I went there totally open to it because just as you say, I didn't want to be left out if it were true. But after five minutes with the so-called seer, I read. And I think it was a good move. So I think that, I mean, I think that we ought, as much as we're impatient with church machinery and church hierarchy, we do have a God-willed way of authenticating things. We ought to, we ought to be obedient to the local bishop. There was this man uh, who died. He was putting out, uh, he's one of these people, I, I think it was not Soul Magazine, the uh, Divine Love. Divine Love. He had an Italian name, but he anglicized it. And I remember every time he wrote anything in his paper, Divine Love, he always put in, but only with the permission of the bishop. And I said, you sound like a, an obsequious person to me. And uh, in other words, he sounds as if he's trying to gain points with the hierarchy. But his point was totally right. He was just, he was as cynical as I, or, or almost, about everything. But he said, Bill, if we do have authentic, apparition, why don't we stick to them until the others get authenticated? And I think that's right. If we had no apparitions whatsoever, well then I suppose we go shopping, but I am really nervous that we abandon uh, Fatima for the sake of something unapproved, which if it turns out to be fraudulent, is going to be a bitter thing. So I'd rather be cautious. Please? There's a lady at the back what, there. Is this lady in front, please? Oh, the lady in front first. Thank you. Oh, I, the didn't, next didn't the same sort of thing happen, the silence descend, on the girl and the boy of La Salette? I've forgotten her name. Uh, uh, Maximilian yes. and Melanie. Yes, right. Melanie. Uh, didn't the same sort of what? Uh, silence descend. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there, uh, that, I've been, by the way, to La Salette twice. I've never been to Fatima even once. Someday I hope I get enough money to go to Fatima. I really could do it, but I'm always running off talk about distraction. Uh, in La Salette, which is right near Grenoble, France, in a high alpine mountain, there was this one uh, uh, vision of the Blessed Virgin sitting on a rock weeping, and it was witnessed by two young people, Melanie and Maximilian, who, by the way, were never canonized or anything. In fact, there's some sort of suspicion people try to do it. But the, the apparition was received with total disbelief by everybody. Eventually, it was credited as authentic, but it was never preached. And uh, the great French writer Leon Blois, B-L-O-Y, wrote a beautiful little book, She Who Weeps, about this. And uh, that's one of those things that it seems that I went there. The La Salette order is almost destroyed, by the way. They were a vigorous group of people promoting that apparition. But after they got renewed, they're selling off their property like mad. This is one of the strange fruits of so much updating and all that. But I would say this much. This is what I got from La Salette. I still believe it's valid. Do you know what the Blessed Virgin was complaining of a hundred years ago in, in France? Her, the big thing she was saying would result in a devastated harvest for the great growers. It destroyed the whole French wine industry. It was the working on Sunday and the foul speech of mule drivers. I mean, that is nothing today. Today we would rate that for children. Hey, I mean, if that were a movie. But she said that the punishment of heaven on France 
would come about because of the filthy speech taking the name of Jesus Christ in vain among the mule drivers and the fact that instead of keeping holy the Sabbath, they did everything they felt like. Well, we ought to use that as an estimate of what we deserve. And with the blood of babies flowing under the doors of our obituaries, our abortion places. This lady has a question. Well, we can get in the back first, please. Yes. Um, I, I want to make a comment to you because I've just come back from a pilgrimage to Fatima a few weeks ago. It was a week-long pilgrimage and um, we had mass every day. About half our masses were in the hotel basement. The other half were in open-air places. For instance, one was where the angel appeared. We did have one mass at Jacinta's tomb and we just got, with the permission of the steward... We just got it in and had our communion when we were shooed out. And the, the reason for all this was that our Mass was the traditional Mass of the Catholic Church, which by definition is the true Mass, which I would say most of the people in this room... What was that last room, word, please? What was by definition? No, I don't accept that. Well, I, I am I, not going to get to that. I, if you I want, I understand the I entire part say. of liturgy. Well, well, what I, what I want to say is that it was clear to me that what was wrong with Fatima when I was there was that there was a counterfeit mass and a counterfeit religion and all that goes with it in power in Fatima. And another point, if I could make, we did visit the parish church where the children were baptised. We were saying our rosary, and there were young, half-naked girls. Uh, you, you mentioned sins of the flesh. There were young, half-naked girls in the church polishing the floor while we were there. And because we were traditional Catholics, we didn't like it. But uh, you know, we were the only people that would have minded. Okay, it now, was just I an indication of the spirit. Uh, so, may I ask your conclusion? Yes. You've reported this. That does not disprove Fatima. It proves that, in a way it might prove it, that in the very source of the apparition to tell, we have all these terrible things happening. I fully accept that. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me because I don't have to go to Fatima to see all these abominations. I'm not saying it disproves Fatima. I'm saying I think that that is the reason why the Fatima message no longer means anything. I mean, what's the point of talking about the devotion to the Sacred Heart and the Immaculate Heart of Mary when you've got the Pope going around kissing and hugging infidels and when you, had, you have multi-faith uh, prayer meetings? No, let, let me note this. I, it's I all think... part of this religion. It's all one and it's... And that, to my mind, is why Fatima is being squashed out. I think and I am a sympathetic... If everyone in this room could do something about that, they could start, stop supporting, stop supporting the new liturgy, stop putting their no, pennies uh, in the collection listen, box. Listen, I think I'm as sympathetic as you to the traditionalist movement. Well, no, because I think... Uh, may, I, may I note this? I've met too many traditionalists who are as blind... As, as the people I've been talking about here, they have this magic, if we get the true mass, everything happened, and they are dead wrong on that. Well, that's their naivete, because... 
Paul. Sorry, I don't think we ought to continue making long speeches. Okay. Do you have uh, your question? Yeah. No, I, I, I am totally certain. I'm going to give a talk in two days on, on Ecclesia Dei. I'm in touch with the fraternity of St. Peter. I know, all, I know Bishop Williamson of Lefebvre. I've interviewed Lefebvre. I'm totally open to this entire problem. But I say those traditionalists ought to have a little humility when it comes to the crisis in the church. They, they, and they have all kinds of quick magic formulas for stuff. Let's have another up here in front, please. Yes, Mrs. Uh, sorry, but it, with, with the mic, please. I'm a traditionalist, but I like you, I don't think there's a magic wand to be waved. Uh, I just, when we were speaking about authentic apparitions and those that seem to back up Fatima, here's uh, Akita. This has definitely been backed by the local bishop. And if you know anything about Japanese people, they don't back anything if it's not 100% correct. And what's mentioned in here is that soon there's going to be a punishment greater than the deluge, cardinal against cardinal, bishop against bishop. And now, um, coming to what the third secret of Fatim is, my friend, Madame Baco here, uh, got the proof that it is what we were told in those you know, rumours that it was sitting at the top and all the rest of it. And, and actually, with a mention of Melanie and Maximin, which Our Lady started off with, and the Holy Father referred in Fulda, in Germany to if you know there's a secret etc so we have it from several places including here but in order to mitigate it's the old remedies you know prayer and fasting and adoration of the blessed sacrament and which can be found not only in the traditional church although I go to one that's all I have to say for the moment read uh, John Edwards gave me, a, or someone mailed me, maybe it was you, I just read in today's post, a, a, verge, a, a English translation from the Bishop of Akita, totally authenticating that. That's good news. I had heard about Akita. In fact, I saw a videotape where I was staying at the Blue Army, and they played me a videotape, and I was open to it, but it was a very significant statement by the bishop. And it's a very fearful prophecy, too. Any other discussion? Please, uh, up in the back there, please. Yes, I, I believe in Fatima uh, very strongly, uh, but there were various phenomena witnessed there, like uh, the cloud hovering over the bush while Our Lady was speaking, speaking to the children, and uh, a shower of petals from the sky, which was actually photographed on one occasion. So these phenomena were obviously objective and visible and even photographable. But um, one uh, theory that I have come across in order to attempt to explain it away is that these phenomena, although they were real and actual, were the manifestation or the byproduct of uh, psychic interference, humanly induced atmospheric phenomena producing distortions in the atmosphere and so on. And these produced uh, the effect of uh, um, distortions on the sun, and the emanations of rays, something akin to that which I'm told occurs at uh, um, spiritualist seances where materialistic ectoplasmic um, emanations come forth, but they're nothing necessarily supernatural. That is what I've sort of been led to. Um, you know, in the abstract, that is possible. I was just reading a marvelous book by Cardinal Newman. Newman is my favorite Englishman, and you people are lucky. This is the 100th anniversary of his death. And in John Edwards' house, 
you can't get into my bedroom because it's so many books, but I squeezed my way through, and I happened to come upon Newman on miracles, and Newman's a great philosopher of miracles. It is, but this is the way the devil works too. It, uh, there are certain natural phenomena which are very rare and which are studied, but then this is completely gratuitous. Uh, uh, all of a sudden, you have something in which the theme is a revelation from God. You have people whose lives have been holy. You have church authority there. And gratuitously, someone says it is in the abstract possible that minds can cause things. Well, what they have to do is show us that this is truly a natural phenomenon Get 20 people to think hard and cause the rain to come. I mean, let, let's start with rain in England before. So I think that's gratuitous. The burden of proof is on them. But some people will clutch at any uh, explanation in order to evade the responsibility of taking seriously what Fatima said. I claim that those journalists there who saw the sun twirl and saw the, sun, the rain-drenched people suddenly become uh, uh, dried up, I don't think they would accept that. But for certain leisurely philosophers and parapsychiatric people in the university, this is like chess. They love that kind of phenomenon to chat about at tea. And I, I kind of, the essence of my answer would be it's gratuitous. They have no proof that's their problem. Gentleman in the front, Cecil, please. If one leads off from uh, Lourdes to Fatima in chronological order, after the church said... Um, ruled on Lourdes that the faithful could if they wished uh, believe in the truth of Lourdes and in parenthesis um, if you read the um, accounts of Lourdes from various sources you'd be very foolish uh, if you have any um, um, feeling for divine providence uh, to reject it as a sign but A it isn't the dogma of the church, is it? And B, there were, after the church had pronounced on the authenticity of Lourdes, 60 spurious claims, some of which were entirely innocent, because it is Catholic teaching, isn't it, that sometimes, and we don't know why, God allows the devil to make use of innocent people. I, would you draw a conclusion? I don't know. I, I am interested in what you said, but therefore what? Uh, what would be well, the well, point? Well, well, the point is all, all these visions. I, I know one in, which is supposed to have happened in Central Europe. Uh, I, I'm not going to mention it, but I'm very doubtful uh, myself. But the point is, in all these things, uh, and um, Ray the Sixty Spurious claims, um, I say that on the authority, and I don't think he um, mind me mentioning his name, is Father Hugh Thwaite, S.J. I like the man, I know him. Yeah. But um, um, the, the, the point is, in, in well, the church hasn't spoken, and of course, you'd be foolish too to reject Fatima uh, um, on the evidence, um, that, though it's not dogma. But um, it's, as Father Hugh Thwaite says, it's just as well um, to realize the devil, uh, being a fallen angel, and an archangel of that, is cleverer than the greatest human no, intellect. And I think that should cause us to be humble and reverent. Right. Yes, Mrs.? 
Excuse me, uh, my accent, I'm French. Many years ago, when I was practicing my faith as a routine before a lapse, I went at, in this cathedral, I went to confession for the first Saturday. It was in 1947. And the priest, uh, because I said it's the wish of Holy Dead Fatima to go on the first, for the first Saturday. And he said, it is superstition. Then I lapsed. And what brought me back to the faith, it is the message of our day of Mont Carmel at Garabandal. But I've been working for many years to propagate the message, introducing it with the La Salette message and Fatima message. And recently I spoke to my parish priest. I said, Father, we never heard anything said about devotion to the first Friday of sac uh, for, uh, devotion of Sacred Heart, nor to our day of first Saturday. Oh, that is not liturgical. That is not liturgical. Well, I sympathize totally with your uh, frustration over that kind of answer. Yeah, there's an awful lot of bad faith. Uh, there's no faith. Our problem is we have a clergy with little faith. And yeah. thanks to their seminary training and their disastrous formation, I don't say it's universal, but there are too many people without faith. They just want to get the job over with. Just get out of here and get over it. And it's a scandal to the faithful. Uh, not, not renewal against a movement to post of the last time which has been announced by Aledia La Salette and it is working very well excuse me madam as you were speaking for a short time before the microphone returned just to summarize what you've said you were saying about the order of La Salette having been set up by the command we don't believe in the secret of La Salette which has been duly approved about the church. You know about the secret of La Salette? Uh, the secret of La Salette? Yes. No. The whole one. We've got it. I got it. I would My give you a booklet. Okay, right. Huh? Uh, I, I'm not aware. I probably have read it, but I have a bad memory. So I've got something okay. Good. Thank you very much. Somebody else? I know this is changed. I know it's changed the subject a little bit, actually, but I would have liked somewhere in the latter part of the evening just to uh, give some mention of the St. Joseph's Foundation, if you could. But right. not, not necessarily now, if it's not... Well, why not now? Uh, I think uh, you people have gotten some uh, ditto pages, uh, photocopy pages on the St. Joseph Foundation. If you look at the bottom, I hope my name's there right, I'm on the National Advisory Committee with a lot of good friends of mine, uh, I had thought that certain people here who were interested in setting up a similar group in Great Britain would have met with me. I still have Sunday free, and I think I'm free Sunday. So if anyone here wants to do it, briefly it's this. There's a new code of canon law, and under, the, under any code of law, people not only have responsibilities, they have rights, uh, it seems as if the beleaguered laity who are being pushed one way or another by arrogance in all sorts of clerical situations, the beleaguered laity sometimes need uh, judicial relief from arrogant clergymen and schoolmasters and so on. And the St. Joseph Foundation has that own, that's its only function. I know the founder, Chuck Wilson, he and I have met very often, and 
Alma and the lecture circuit and other people are doing uh, audio tapes and other people are writing and so on. The St. Joseph Foundation is a small group. It's headquartered in Texas. And in no way does he want business from the British Isles. Uh, the most he'll do is, if you people are interested in the concept, he can save you two years of agony and work by briefing you on what has to be done. But briefly, when you set up a group like the St. Joseph's Foundation and someone has a complaint about her child was going to a Catholic school and the school was teaching pure heresy, she objected and the child was expelled or something like that, and or a teacher in a Catholic school teaching absolutely in accordance with church doctrine was dismissed. Well, if you have a complaint, you can, of course, ask your pastor, ask the bishop and so on, and don't sit by the telephone waiting for an answer or waiting for the post. But it may be necessary to file a juridical complaint. Now, the St. Joseph Foundation knows all of the technical details you have to do. And first of all, the most important thing, they have enough experience now to view the case itself. They'll ask you to fill out a form. And when they read the form, they'll say, you don't have a chance, forget it. Right? Sometimes they'll say, you do have a chance. You have a valid complaint here, and they'll set the process in motion. And then your bishop, your pastor, and your bishop are obliged by canon law to go through certain steps. If they don't go through it, you get advanced to a higher court. Now, we have a few good canon lawyers in Rome. They're overworked and underpaid. But some of you here, you have to have a serious complaint. If your complaint is simply that Father so-and-so is using altar girls, it, it is a disobedience, I know, but forget it. Rome has other problems. I mean, it's an abominable... There is no governing in the church today. That's what Hamish Fraser used to paraphrase Cardinal Newman. There's a temporary suspension of the governing authority of the church. That's why we have anarchy and when we have chaos. But there still are certain channels. So if you have a bona fide grievance, a serious one, the St. Joseph Foundation would handle it in America. Now, it's not going to handle a British problem. I mean, you've got your own problems, we got our problem. But if you have five or six people, I don't need many, they need not be civil lawyers. Chuck Wilson is a businessman. He's sold insurance. He's getting his degree in canon law right now. But get five or six people who have leisure and tact, and who know how to handle people, if you're willing to, to make your daily sacrifice, it's going to take time. There's no magic in anything. If you want to learn about a similar foundation, you might begin with a celebrated cause that has a real chance of winning. Well, you learn on the job. We will, I mean, uh, uh, Chuck sent this stuff already, and for a few pounds postage, you can get all the data he knows. But if you had to start from scratch, it would take you two years and a hundred disappointments. This way, it will take you a few months, and you'll learn on the job. And it, it, you better know this, though. Once you start it, you better have an extra telephone. And you have to have love and patience and everything else. And it's not guaranteed any way of success, but it's one small initiative we are trying to use to restore order to the church. We didn't need law courts before Vatican II. Our rights were protected. Our children were not given sex education and heresy. Our liturgy was not blasphemous. But by the way, don't expect the St. Joseph Foundation 
to replace a pastor who'd been moved by the bishop. Rome will back up the bishop no matter what. That's a frivolous lawsuit. So I do ask you to read it. I am available for private consultation. The mostly, you know, the only thing I can do to most people is to give them a little encouragement. There is no magic formula. When you, when you understand there's a serious thing to be done, it's going to, don't start looking for the next man to do it. Call up someone and say, oh, I got just the project for you. No, if you are willing to try to do it, fine. But otherwise, stay home. But if some of you think you'd want to try, I can give you a bit of advice, a bit of encouragement, and then I'm going to take my aircraft, I'm flying out of Gatwick next Monday. Goodbye, sweet England, I'll be back two years from now. Don't you start ringing me up at midnight about the St. Joseph Foundation. This is your apostle. I was just going to comment, Doctor, about La Salette, that when Our Lady announced the famine, the Irish people suffered too because they worked on Sunday and they took our Lord's holy name in vain, and they still do, not alone in that. But the population of Ireland went down from 9 million to 3 between who died and who had to emigrate. So I used to always blame the English on the famine because at the time food was exported. But when I heard about La Salette, I realised it was all our own fault. And at the time there was something called the Ulster Custom. I forget exactly how it worked, but what it meant in practice was that Ulster didn't suffer so much because Protestants were better at keeping Sunday holy and respect for that holy name. No, that's it. Uh, exactly. Uh, I was mentioning this. I was. I forgot where Ipswich. I was yesterday there, talking to a small group of family association of Catholic families. Eventually, this entire question of economics and working and all that, we're going to have to start discussing that seriously. There are certain emergencies now, thanks to the paganization of culture, in which, unfortunately, the Sunday rest is. Is, is almost necessitated to be broken, but we're partly responsible for it. We, there's a whole economic, political, social uh, disaster that has overcome us. Bilak understood this, Chesterton understood this, and, and certain great uh, uh, Catholic writers of the last century, but the 20th century doesn't discuss it enough. This entire question of Wage earning, leisure, Sunday rest, what we mean by keep holy the Sabbath, we ought to discuss that. Maybe in two years, God willing, I'll be back in two years. That should be the topic. But I, I appreciate that remark. One, One other, uh, I, want to, I want to give a little advertisement too. Is it tomorrow I'm talking about evolution, John? Yeah, tomorrow in the Spanish hall... The whole Spanish, Spanish place. place. Okay. St. James's I, because I noticed the lady gave me a talk on creation or evolution. Uh, I have a serious philosophical discussion against evolution. I do not talk scientific stuff. I'm very open to real science. But I want to show you the biggest philosophical hoax. This whole question of evolution is a distraction from the true, from the true philosophical understanding of of, of naturalism and supernaturalism. So if anybody can stand a double dose of lectures, I don't, I don't, where is that Spanish place? In London. In uh, London, north, okay. North, well. north of Central London. Okay, good enough. Uh, that's just a commercial. Okay, please. Uh, one last contribution yeah. from the floor, perhaps. And then we must, I think, finish. Deirdre? Uh, I think 
Well, 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 could we have perhaps two? This gentleman has okay. been waiting a little time. Okay, please. And then yourself, madam, is the last, right? I was just going to ask, uh, say a, a, a critical outsider <clears throat> might ask, well, why doesn't God protect people from these uh, spurious and false uh, apparitions, say, by uh, discerning them in advance? Uh, uh, and why doesn't uh, he get everything across in one message and say, well, that's that? And well, I mean, uh, trying to probe the mind of God is difficult, but we do have in place a church for all its human fault, and if we stuck to true church authority, we would never accept the false as true. We might reject the true as false for a while, and maybe God would reward us for our docility and humility, but we could be protected from all these cranks, and boy, we need it. So um, I think we ought to stick to the gospel, stick to tradition, stick to the authentic apparition. And if you hear about anything else, have a reverent, open attitude toward it, but don't start rushing off and buying tickets. Please. One last contribution, Mrs. Manifold. Yeah. There's a program about to go into the school. It's in September on education on AIDS. And it's really an excuse for telling the, those young 12 and 13-year-olds every form of perversion. Without, they're not going to be judgmental. Lesbianism is a natural way of life, all the, all the rest. Um, and I just wonder if, if the St. Joseph Foundation, if it were there, could it do something about it? Well, when it, uh, this is published by a hierarchy. Did you all hear that? Could, could you summarize it? Yes. yes. Um, just that Mrs. Manifold is saying that we have all kinds of perversion in the wake of AIDS promoted as true, and we are forbidden to be judgmental. When this is taught to our children, could the St. Joseph's Foundation do anything about that would be a case. That would be a case. We have a few friends in Rome and a lot of enemies in Rome. Cardinal, cardinal Gagnon is one of the greatest cardinals alive, and he's absolutely sympathetic to us, but he has been, he, we've already, we're already lost on this new creation series. He yielded to two other congregations there, but I think it would absolutely pay to make noise on that. This is the most depressing part of the last 25 years, the unholiness of the rut. They're serving up to our children. I could uh, I can understand almost anything else, but the church is holy. And when you read that rut, and you see that they're forcing this on children, it's worthy of hell. So I, uh, but don't expect any sort of success because Rome has its problems. Gagnon is our greatest hope there. Okay, well, uh, um. What time is there a talk in the Spanish place tomorrow? Eight Seven? Eight? Eight o'clock in the evening. Uh, uh, should yeah. Be, yeah. I think there's a flyer back there. We also have some tapes on evolution and mm -hmm. so on. Okay. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, to finish off the evening, I think we are all very sad that, as he puts it himself, Dr. Mara is kissing our country goodbye at Gatwick Airport on Monday, is it? Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, we're very relieved that he's coming again in two years. Two years, as you all know, as you get older, passes very quickly. So at least uh, we shall see him again soon. It doesn't seem two years since he was last here. It was four years. 
Well, it doesn't seem four years. <laughs> That's probably why it doesn't seem two years. It doesn't seem four years either. Um, I think we could all show our gratitude both for tonight and for the whole of his tour. And could we perhaps finish the evening with a prayer? Did I see a priest in the audience at the back who would perhaps like to? I see. <laughs> hail Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, hail our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve, and to thee do we send up our sighs, mourning, and weeping in this veil of tears. Turn then, most gracious Advocate, thine eyes of mercy towards us, and after this our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good night. See many of you, I hope, in October. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I wonder if we can start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of the faithful, kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created. O God, who has taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant by the light of the same Spirit we may be always truly wise, and ever rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Very pleasing indeed to see such a large audience again, to see this room nearly full. Should I hold this down, John? That's fine, is it? Good. Thank you. Um, I don't think Dr. Bill Mara from the United States needs much of an introduction to most of you. This is his fourth tour of the United Kingdom. And he can't remember whether this is the seventh or eighth talk he's given in the last few days. Uh, I can well believe it's about that number. He's about three to go, he thinks. He'll certainly be well known to most of you. He's a great favourite with uh, Profide and other audiences. I've heard him before, and he always went down particularly well with the audience and inspired them. A few points about him, just in case you don't know who or what he is. For the past 36 years, he's been a teacher of philosophy at Fordham University in New York. He's the co-host with Father Vincent Micheli of a radio program called Where Catholics Meet, which has run in 13 major American cities. Um, in 1988, he ran for President of the United States on the pro-life issue. You'll probably have gathered he wasn't successful. Uh, he's a widower with four children, he is, as I say, well known to many of you, and I imagine you're agog to hear his talk this evening, the title of which is, Whatever Happened to Fatima. Thank you.